and to Grand Rapids uh, Police Department and the city officials credit by releasing this information sooner, it actually will calm things down. We send people off to prison uh, basically now with the goal of punishing them and keeping them behind bars uh, for a prescribed period of time without regard for whether or not they're still a danger to society. You know, a lone gunman who wants to do something like this is very difficult for them. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Grand Rapids Police released several videos on Wednesday showing the police officer involved shooting that killed 26-year-old Patrick Leoya. The video showed an unnamed Grand Rapids police officer wrestling on the ground with Leoya before shooting him in the back of the head. Ben Johnson is representing the Leoya family, and he was on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. Can you tell us a little bit about who Patrick Leoya is? Well, Kevin, uh, I just got retained within the last 24 to 48 hours, so to, to put it bluntly, I'm still learning a lot as well. But what I do know, he was the number one son a total of six sons that this family had. They're refugees from the Congo. They came here. They've been in the Grand Rapids area for a few years. English was his second language, but he could speak English. And he was, uh, by all reports, a really good guy. And I can assure you, if he was a dangerous criminal with a long criminal history, you'd have heard about it by now, since this is a week and a half after the shooting, Kevin. You've seen it before. I know you know these types of cases sadly as well anything in, the, in my client's background you'd already know by now we know nothing about this officer that shot and killed my client in an execution type style shot to the back of the head while my client was face down to the ground well we are we are going to find out pretty soon about patrick's uh, problematic driving record and uh, why he doesn't have a license i don't know if that's why he ran or not nobody does but what should have happened when he did decide to flee well, it, it's easy. Under the law, 42 U.S.C. 1983, it's excessive force law, police officers are trained to go after people or not. That's their decision. But once they choose to do that, they are trained to engage. Just like you, you said in the lead-in, Kevin, that this officer, if he was going to use his taser, you don't bring your taser out when you're in what they call hand-to-hand -hand combat. So what tasers are designed to do is you're supposed to have space in between you and the taser so that the two taser probes can be shot out at somebody so the officer doesn't have to use his hands on somebody. So he already skipped over that process. And no question, Patrick resisted, but anybody will tell you. Ike McKinnon yesterday was on the record as telling Channel 4 you can't shoot and kill somebody, especially when they're face down on the ground with your gun, simply because they're resisting. Yeah, so the grief here, obviously, uh, is, is incredibly real, and so is the outrage. And saying goodbye to a young son and a brother is incredibly difficult. And uh, much of the community is trying to provide comfort with their support for the family, obviously. So the legal case here that you're going to need to make, it goes beyond just the grief. Obviously, you're going to be right in the middle of that, dealing with the family. But how do you make the legal case against Grand Rapids police? I mean, what's the number one piece of evidence you think you'll be able to use to prove that this was an ex execution-style uh, murder? Uh, what evidence do you think will stick? Well, the, Tom, the, the, the video that we do have, 
and to Grand Rapids uh, Police Department and the city officials credit. In an overwhelming majority of cases like this that I've been doing now for over 30 years, we would never have this type of video within two weeks. But I think we're learning from our mistakes here across the United States in these shootings. Again, sad that we keep having to learn anything. But the fact of the matter is, by releasing this information sooner, it actually will calm things down. And then that video where you can see the officer is on top of my client. My client is face down on the ground. And then he can see the officer pulling his weapon while he's still struggling on top of my client face down. That's the number one piece of evidence because no way did this officer reasonably fear for his life at that point because he's clearly in control of my client. So you can't shoot and kill somebody in that type of situation. Whether or not he was afraid for life is hard to glean from video, but you're right that that last action there by that police officer is by far the most concerning aspect of the video. It shows a number of things leading up to that. And as his attorney, as a family attorney, you're going to be asked a number of questions and you have to address these as you see fit. And one question out there is why did Patrick not comply? Why did he flee? What is it or what will be your answer to that? Well, short answer is since obviously Patrick is dead and I can't ask him, Tom, I don't know. But what I would suggest is a very, very realistic and likely answer is you have he's a black man in America that can watch television and see things online with a white police officer coming up to him at 811 on a Monday morning uh, coming over to him. So he was clearly afraid. And let's say he was scared. Let's say he wanted to get away. All of those things. But remember one thing, please. The police officer has the car. The police officer has the license plate. The police officer has the gentleman in the front seat who was a witness to this whole thing. And thank God he, he, he uh, videotaped it on his phone. Uh, so if the, if the goal, which is what the goal should be, to arrest this, uh, Patrick, if that's the goal, or take him to jail or whatever, then that that can happen. It can happen in 45 minutes to an hour later because they would have had every single piece of information. And what would they have had, guys? Backup. They'd have had other people there. And, again, remember, my client was unarmed, guys. My client never said a single word toward this cop, never threatened him, and my client never kicked, never hit this police officer. What you can see him doing is trying to push the the, the officer's hands away from him and the taser from trying to direct, it's called a stunned uh, component of the taser, trying to push that away from his body, which to me is a natural reflex. So he did not have his hand on the taser uh, at the time he was shot as if he was trying to take the taser away from the officer? Well, Kevin, I don't know about you, but I can't see that uh, since the taser uh, the officer had at one point in time was on the right side of his body. And all you can see is the officer reaching back with his right arm. Right. So we know the officer didn't have his taser in the right arm at that time and pull out his gun. And what I'm telling you guys is taser is a is a mid-level uh, weapon, if you will. It is uh, although it can be. Uh, uh, deadly in terms of deadly force there is no excuse and you're not going to find any any credible police expert out there to say that even if my client had the taser okay i hope they uh, dust it for uh fingerprints by the way uh 
even if he did, the officer cannot shoot him in the back of the head in that situation. Just can't be done. Is Grand Rapids at fault for not training this officer properly? Yes. And even more importantly, Kevin, I have another major case against Grand Rapids right now. And what we're going to show in this case is that there is a, a practice and a pattern of misconduct where what they do when they have an officer that they know is guilty of use of excessive force, they put them right back on the street and pretend like nothing happened. And that's exactly what they did with an officer uh, following the Black Lives Matter movement case called Hart and Guzman versus City of Grand Rapids yeah. that I currently have. John Baustain, president of Command Presence LLC, has been training law enforcement officers for over 20 years, and he gives his insight on the shooting to Guy Gordon. What goes into the decision through training about whether an officer did, should pursue physically that suspect or stay with the passengers in the vehicle? Right. There are, there's... Um in these cases, there's never a single right answer. I think that's important for us to remember. Uh, the decisions by the officers are made based upon what's called the totality of circumstances. And quite honestly, we won't get any insight into that until we uh, know what the officer says during their interview with Michigan State Police and things like that. However, there's always multiple options. And what happens in these cases a lot of times when we say, the officer should have done X or could have done Y. It's always through the vision of hindsight. So we've got to be cautious about that because mm -hmm. that's not the world that the officer was operating in at the moment. So in this case here, uh, it sounds like uh, we've got a registration issue, which in most cases would probably be considered fairly minor. Um, I think what happens is when he makes contact with the, uh, with the gentleman, the driver, what it does look like is that um, the gentleman is not listening to instructions and things like that. So that may have a tendency to raise our level a little bit of wondering why. Why does this person not want to talk right. to me? Uh, and it certainly, once they take off running, uh, most uh, reasonable officers may perceive that, hey, wait, there's more going on here. Um, and they have a lawful right to detain that person long enough to either prove or disprove that they've been involved in some type of criminal activity. And it appears that's what the officer was attempting to do. Well, and I guess that's because, again, we've got critics out there saying, well, he should, he never should have pursued, should have stayed with the car. He can then wait for backup and he can get a warrant for that man. Uh, and, and he still will be identifiable. Um, is, is that a justified viewpoint? I mean, certainly that would be an option. Uh, there's no question about that. That would be also a reasonable option is that we could, in fact, um, let things play out, stay with the driver, hope that the driver's identification can be found in the vehicle. We, again, through hindsight, we know that that was the case. However, if the, that was not the case, the officer is there with a vehicle that has mismatched registration. We've got somebody that fled. And now it could be that, uh, you know, you're starting to think maybe this is a stolen vehicle or something right. like that. So there is, we could always, certainly argue that, well, if the officer had just not done anything, this whole thing could have been avoided. Um, but that's a slippery slope in, in and of itself. Thank I think you. we've got to yeah. be cautious about that. Yeah. Um, he obviously tried to physically subdue this individual. He was on top of him, but he was unable to cuff him. The, the gentleman was still, um, he, he was resisting, and he was pretty effective at that. 
Um, is there in their training a point at which you say, look, this this physical altercation I'm having with this person is not going well. I need to back off and deploy non-lethal force or something like that. What what how what are officers instructed to do when they're not winning the fight? Right. That's a great, uh, great question. Um, and what we do actually see him doing is things that we would train. So he realized that you can tell by his labored breathing um, that this fight was having a physical effect on the officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could tell when he gets on the radio later that he's he's out of breath. And I think what people don't quite understand about these physical altercations is that they're really difficult. Um, we're trying to control people without hurting them, but also be effective in our our controls. What he does do, if you'll notice on the video, there's uh, I didn't count them, but there's a number of knee strikes that the officer uh, delivers towards the abdomen and the side of the gentleman. And that is something we would teach when we're up close in personal with somebody right. kind of engaged and, in, in, for lack of a better term, entangled with somebody. So those knee strikes would certainly be uh, reasonable under those circumstances. Now, the question becomes whether the officer... Uh, believed he could disengage without the person uh, then being able to gain the advantage. That's the the decision that's going in in the author's mind is, do I have the ability or, hey, I'm so tired. I've already been fighting with this guy um, and I'm not winning. And and that's a a terrible feeling uh, to feel like that. I'm not winning. I'm not controlling this guy. I'm now maybe at his mercy. So, that is the question that probably runs through the author's mind is, can I physically actually create enough distance? Um, we call it discretionary time. Is, do I have the opportunity to create discretionary time, which means create some distance, maybe utilize a physical barrier, and then at that point, um, you know, make a decision based on what they right. see in front of me. He, so he didn't do that, though, on. and he tried to deploy his taser while still on top of the man. Is that an appropriate deployment in such close range in a close quarters fight? So use of the taser in that particular circumstances would not necessarily be unreasonable. Um, now, he he deployed as a general rule, tasers are supposed to be deployed at greater distances. Uh, where we That's when we ideally would like to do it, uh, and we'd like to get a what's called a, a proper spread. However, in this current circumstances, if we're up close and personal, the taser will still function and to cause something we call electromuscular uh, dysfunction. And what that does is basically the, the videos you see of people being tased, that's when they're kind of, their muscles kind of lock up and we can gain control of them that way. In this particular case, if one probe had entered his body, then they could use the, uh, the taser itself to, um, to actually what we call close the loop. So it's right. not completely unthinkable that it could have worked in that situation. It just, uh, it's not something that's practiced a lot, to be honest with you. When we talk about training issues, uh, most of our taser deployments and training come from, you know, the 15 feet mark or something like that, the way it's traditionally used. Well, then the, the suspect can't take the taser away from you. Right, right, exactly. I mean, at close quarters, uh, is- there's a risk of that. There is a risk of that. Right. Um, and again, because we don't know exactly what he was thinking at the time, you know, it, it's hard for me uh, to try and second guess what he was doing. I, 
I am of the mindset that I want a complete, accurate, thorough investigation. And then I can, mm -hmm. as an expert, I can now go back, I can look at his interviews or her interviews. Uh, I mean, I'm, just, I'm sorry, look at his interview. I can see uh, what he was thinking and why he made the decisions. And the idea here on all use force investigations is about finding out what happened, but also more importantly, why the decisions that were made were made. Um, right. That's training, experience, and things like that. The New York City Police Department arrested 62-year-old Frank James Wednesday after allegedly shooting 10 people on a subway train in Brooklyn. Chris Hansen of Dateline NBC fame was not far from the attack when it happened, and he checked in with All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. Um, I heard about it as I was getting ready to leave the apartment and go to an appointment in the Soho Italy area, which would be the last stop before uh, Brooklyn. And, you know, you hear a lot of things, a lot of reports, strange things happen on the subway. But clearly, I mean, this is a guy who had the intent to harm people. Uh, sources have confirmed that, that there were smoke bombs. But it appears that he acted alone. So far, it does not appear to be an organized act of terrorism, although it terrorized everybody who was on the subway this morning. You know, the, the basic description is, Five five hundred and seventy pounds wearing a you know construction workers uniform. Now this I should say would not stand out on the subway. I ride it virtually every week, and you see guys in construction outfits every day. There's construction going on every block in New York City, and many of these guys have gas masks or industrial. Uh, ventilators because of what they do for a living. So it's not uncommon. What would standard security look like on the subway in that area of Brooklyn? It's intermittent, Kevin. You know, Amir Adams has really made it a priority to put more police officers on the trains. And I have seen uh, an enhanced presence on the trains that I take every day. And I take that, that N train, usually not into Brooklyn, but I get off at the stop just before Brooklyn. And um, you see many more police officers. And, you know, the, the, the theory is that if you crack down on low-level crimes on the subway, you can prevent more serious things from happening, like people being shoved into the trash and things like that. You know, 70% of the, uh, the crimes have gone up 70% of the subways over the last couple of years. So there's been a real effort here. But, you know, a lone gunman who wants to do something like this is very difficult to prevent. Um, and again, uh, you know, it'll be you know, interesting and important to determine the motive here. Um, and, and, you know, why does somebody do this in the morning rush hour? But it is it's jarring. I mean, it's, it's a very um, big deal here in New York City, having gone through 9-11 and yeah. several other, uh, you know, subway incidents, whether it's something as simple as, you know, a mugging or an attack or a stabbing by, you know, a homeless person who's psychiatrically unstable. You know, people are on edge on the subway. So you tend to, become a little lax but you know every time you get on it's you know sort of a situational awareness uh, type thing in your mind you know mm -hmm. that what are they doing and you get on and get off we only have a minute left chris but uh with the smoke sure. detonation this looks like uh this looks like this was planned pre-planned yeah at least by this one person um you know the fact that there wasn't a second gunman the fact that uh uh, there were no explosives, you know, leads investigators to think, you know, this wasn't a traditional organized terrorist attack. But again, any attack causes terror, you know, in a closed space, which is the New York City subway system. So, you know, it was terrifying, uh, whether it's tied to some bigger plot, and, you know, that'll be determined, but it doesn't appear so, so far. It appears to be a long done.
still well, fighting, still dangerous. Former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick is leading the Good Time Ballot Initiative, where certain incarcerated individuals can earn time off their sentences by obtaining a college degree or learning job skills. And he has what seems to be an unlikely ally in Detroit News editorial page editor Nolan Finley, who was on this week with Paul W. Smith. Paul, regardless of how you feel about Kwame Kilpatrick and whether you believe um, his conversion, his redemption is real, it's a good idea. I mean, we send people off to prison uh, basically now with the goal of punishing them and keeping them behind bars uh, for a prescribed period of time without regard for whether or not they're still a danger to society. And this is a waste of money. It's a waste of lives. Uh, And I think this good time initiative that uh, ballot petitions are now circulating for, which would allow people who fix themselves, if you will, while they're in prison, who take the steps necessary to reform themselves, uh, would be able to get out early. And so people would have an incentive to better themselves and to behave behind bars. I think it's a, it's a, a, a good idea, and uh, I support the initiative. Well, and, and it's, uh, forgive me, but it's not, it wouldn't be out of the realm of realistic reaction for you to question if he's being honest. But it sure sounds like he's being honest in this good time initiative that he is promoting. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, again, no matter how you feel about him, and I have, as I express, I have some questions because there's still a whole lot of money unaccounted for but uh, it's, you know, a good idea can come from, uh, you know, come from a lot of places. And I think this is a good idea. He supports it. I support it. Uh, you know, we've got to re-look at, at um, the purpose of our correction systems. I believe it should be to correct. And once you're corrected, uh, it should be moved back in society. Your life shouldn't be wasted and taxpayer money shouldn't be wasted keeping you warehoused. Well, and and the proof is in the pudding. People are not going to be put in prison forever. And unfortunately, the level of recidivism and the level of criminal activity that comes from people who have spent time in graduate school, their graduate school being prison, uh, come out and be better bad people than better good people. Drops way down, though, Paul, if they have, uh, you know, if they have... Uh educated themselves while in prison, if right. they have prepared themselves for lives ap- afterwards, if they have some hope coming out. And uh, I think that's the essential ingredient that too often is missing. I got a, a letter from a mother of a prisoner yesterday. Her son's in, in, in behind bars and for a, a, an extended amount of time yet. And, you know, he's trying to get into courses, can't get into courses, can't prepare himself, can't even get treatment for his opioid uh, addiction, which is what led led him to prison. So he's just sitting in there idling day after day after day. When he comes out, he'll probably know better, be no better than we, when he went in. What was the point? Right. So this has got to be something that's done more so than a fallen mayor who has an idea through his own experience mm. to have a good time initiative. Uh, as you put in your column, Nolan Finley, it's a good start. But you favor a more radical criminal justice reform than the modest improvements that that would deliver. 
So, yeah, you know, I don't know why we can't stop and take a look at uh, this correction system. We've been operating it the same way in many aspects for uh, for ever. I guess yep, uh, yep. You, somebody commits a crime, goes to court, gets convicted, and we say, "Oh, you're going to jail for five years, or ten years, or twenty years, or life, or whatever." My idea would be to once they're convicted and standing before the judge to say, "You're going to jail." until you fix the thing that's wrong with you. We're not going to let you out until you have, uh, you're no longer a danger, a risk to society. But at the same time, uh, we're not going to keep you a day longer uh, past that point at which you have fixed your life. That'll do it for Podsui this week. For full episodes or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.